0: Good evening, and welcome to the Business of Giving. I'm Denver Frederick, and tonight we're going to begin with a school which is dedicated to the art and science of philanthropy. It's the Lilly School of Philanthropy, and we will be joined by their dean, Amir Pasik, who is concerned that fewer Americans are giving to support charitable causes.
1: We used to confidently say that Americans give more frequently than they vote. (laughs) And I'm not sure we can say that anymore, which is also troubling because we think that giving is an important part of our democracy as well. So there's a lot of us who are worried that the level of giving by everyday folks may be going down.
0: And then you will hear from Caitlin Barron, the inaugural chief executive officer of the Luminos Fund. Luminos was created to give children in the developing world... A Second Chance.
2: And one of the aspects of our work that I find the most uh, ultimately exciting and rewarding, which is that, that, you know, we work with children who have literally never been to school. And in 10 months, they become functionally literate and numerate. They're able to read. They're essentially covering three years of school in one year.
0: And we'll close with a Take Five lightning round with Peter Singer, professor of bioethics at Princeton University and the author of The Life You Can Save. But first, the business of giving news digests for Sunday, December 1st. A study from the World Health Organization found that more than 80% of children aged 11 to 17 worldwide did not meet current recommendations of at least one hour of physical activity per day. As Australia experiences record-breaking drought and bushfires, koala populations have dwindled along with their habitat, leaving them functionally extinct. Americans are moving at the lowest rate since the government started keeping track in the 1940s, according to Census Bureau data, as deep changes in the economy and the housing market increasingly freeze Americans in place. And finally, 55 percent of young adults have never heard of Giving Tuesday, and only 16 percent of those have given annually during the event, according to a new report. And that is the Business of Giving News Digest for this Sunday evening. I'll be back with Amir Pasik of the Lilly School of Philanthropy right after this.
3: Tiana was homeless and looking for a change. At Year Up, she gained valuable skills and a path to success. 85% of Year Up alumni are employed or in school within four months of graduation. Support transformative opportunities for young adults like Tiana. Visit yearup.org. If you're interested in reading transcripts of guests' interviews from the business of giving, you can find them at denverfrederick.wordpress.com. And now back to the show on AM 970, The Answer. Every industry has changed
0: dramatically over the course of the past quarter century. This would certainly include the field of philanthropy, which has truly become a profession. And one of the leaders in the professionalization of this field has been the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. And here with us to discuss that and the nonprofit sector at large is Amir Pasik, the dean of the Lilly School of Philanthropy. Good evening, Amir, and welcome to the Business of Giving.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I think there are probably a number of listeners out there who were not aware that such a school even existed. So let me begin by asking you, why a school of philanthropy?
1: Well, we started to, as a center um, of philanthropy, um, over 30 years ago, and we believe that generosity and caring for each other and giving are such a fundamental part of the human condition and a fundamental part of our society that they deserve a lot more research and a lot more discussion than they have been getting from the conventional disciplines.
0: Mm -hmm. Well give us a sampling of the kind of courses you offer at the school and what types of degrees you confer.
1: Well one of the most popular courses that we do is the history of volunteering and philanthropy in America and that is one of the courses that a lot of the undergraduates who come to our university take, and they become um, fascinated by the importance of voluntary activity in building our country, and not only our country, but civilizations around the world. And then our when the students come into the program, they take courses on the ethics of philanthropy. What is good philanthropy? They take courses on the economics, the law of the nonprofit sector. They take courses on comparative civil society to understand the context around the world. And then they take some more practical courses on grant-making and fundraising so that they get a full picture of both sides of philanthropy, if you will, both the giving side and the asking side. And then they're always required to do internships and apply a lot of the knowledge that they learn as well. Where is the school located? We're located in Indianapolis, Indiana. Oh, there you go. So Mm -hmm. now, do you have to go out
0: there to take these courses or do you offer um, courses in other cities around the country or perhaps
1: even online? In terms of the academic courses, the master's program is available entirely online, and we have many students who join us uh, from different parts of the country and even internationally, and the first time we encounter them is when they come for graduation. Uh, In terms of the bachelor's and the Ph.D. program, you do have to be in residence. But outside of our master's program, we also have a training program, which we, to confuse people, call the fundraising school, Mm -hmm. which is a non-credit training program for fundraisers that's been around for quite a while, and that's available in 18 cities around the country um, and, and online as well.
0: The Lilly School partners with Giving USA, and what you guys do is you issue an annual report on philanthropy for the year. How much was given in 2018, the last year reported? Is that number going up? Is that number going down? Or are we kind of just going around and around?
1: Well, we uh, Americans gave about 420 billion dollars uh, last year, and the Giving USA is the annual measure of where the money comes from—is it individuals, foundations, and corporations—and then where it goes to: mm-hmm. uh, religion, education, <clears throat> healthcare, and, and so forth. And it's—it um, has been keeping up, if you will. Giving has been keeping up. It's been about two percent of GDP uh, for many decades, and we've seen uh, last year in particular. Giving went up nominally, meaning the dollar amount went up. But if you account for inflation, it went down a slight bit. And many of our economists believe that this is the initial effect of the tax reform that we have been through. But it remains to be seen what the long-term effect of that will be.
0: Yeah, it's really hard to tell because I do remember December was a horrific month for the stock market. And I wonder if that may have had an impact as well.
1: Absolutely. The, so the level of giving in the United States is very closely connected to, correlated very closely with the S&P 500, so with the, the level of the stock market. And you're absolutely right. This, our experts look at the volatility and the decline at the end of uh, 2018 and worry that that was one of the reasons. So.
0: And looking at this report, Amir, last year and over the last several years, um, do you detect any trends either hopeful or cause for concern?
1: Well, I think the hopeful trend is that uh, giving has maintained its two percent level of the economy, if you will, and overall giving seems to be keeping pace. One of the things we we have detected is that the number of households in the United States that give is going down slightly mm-hmm. over the last. 10-15 uh, years. So, What's over, that percentage now? It's it's around the, the low 50s. It used to be above 60%. And uh, we used to confidently say that Americans give more frequently than they vote. Mm-hmm. And I'm not <laughs> sure we can say that anymore, which is also uh, troubling because we think that giving is an important part of our democracy as well. So there's a lot of us who are worried that the level of giving by everyday folks may be going down.
0: Yeah, and I think there's an assumption that when 50% of the people or families give, it's the same families every year, but that really isn't the case, is it?
1: No, it's not the case. I mean, there's a lot of change over the years, and some people give, you know, um, one year and then they'll wait and give uh, a little bit later, so that there's Uh, A lot of um, nuance in terms of that 50% because it's not always the same 50%.
0: The faculty of the Lilly Family School wrote a very comprehensive piece titled The Eight Myths of U.S. Philanthropy. I really enjoyed reading that. And I want to talk about a couple of those with you. And we'll start with religion. Uh, 23% of Americans now say they have no religious affiliation. That's as many as Catholics or evangelicals. So it only follows that there is a decline in religious giving. Would that be the case?
1: Well, that it's again, there's the reason we call the myth is because that's not the whole story. There's mm-hmm. certainly less uh, formal affiliation of especially emerging generations with formal congregations, and uh, giving to congregations narrowly measured has been going down over the last 25 years or so. It used to be that over half of all american giving would go to congregation like entities mm-hmm. but what what researchers also look at are uh, Catholic Social Services, World Vision, a lot of uh, nonprofit social service oriented organizations that are actually imbued with some kind of a religious mission and they're a big part of the social service sector as well so that there is a kind of religious giving that takes place that's not going only to congregations and then even if you look at congregations there is important differences and nuances there. There's some uh larger congregations that are continuing to grow and some of the smaller ones for example that are experiencing the declines. so you overlook a lot of the uh important uh, features of what's happening in terms of giving and uh, um, religion if you just simply say it's it's going down in one direction
0: very interesting um here's another one you hear in many development departments it takes as much work to get a small gift as it does a large gift. So focus, focus on those big gifts because small gifts don't really matter. Do small gifts matter?
1: I think small gifts um, matter a lot. And, you know, if you're ta- talking about the, you know, if, if organizations existed for one day and you needed that one gift to survive that one day, of course you would go for the very large gift. But you want organizations to last over long periods of time, especially if they have missions that fit longer periods and and need to be there over long periods of time. And one of the things we know that your large gifts of tomorrow begin as small gifts today. Mm -hmm. So building the base uh, for the future is important. So you have to focus on small gifts. Of course, there's also particular uh, issues where small gifts are crucial. For example, in um, natural disasters and emergencies, Uh, When people kind of surge to help people in need, that's usually the result of a lot of very small gifts that uh, help uh, uh, strangers who are often in different parts of the country. So small gifts and emergencies matter a, a heck of a lot.
0: Yeah, and I think the health of a nonprofit organization is really correlated to the number of small gifts they have because when you see a few organizations that are dependent upon one or two big gifts, if they ever go away those gifts, they're in real trouble.
1: Absolutely, and that's you know it's it's a measure of the relevance of your organization as well, the number of small uh, people, small donors that they have, because it it measures uh, kind of the the the. The breadth of your um, champions, sh- the breadth of the champions that have you have that support you. So, it it's also a measure of your relevance. If you have one person or one foundation who thinks you're doing great work, that says something different than if you have thousands of people saying, "This is my organization."
0: Right. And donors are more than donors. They're advocates. They talk about it. They host things. They participate in walks. They really help spread the word. Absolutely. Another thing you hear often is that African-Americans are a new and emergency demographic in charitable giving. What is the myth surrounding that sentiment?
1: Well, yes, the, the myth is that, uh, as you say, that they're emerging, that African-Americans and other underrepresented communities are now just beginning to give. When we see that there have been um, donors, African-American donors from even before, Um, uh, before the Civil War, um, and one of our professors, Tyrone Freeman, is writing a book right now that will come next year on the life of Madame C.J. Walker, Mm -hmm. who was the first self-made American woman millionaire and happened to be African-American and lived around the time of John D. Rockefeller. And she's just one indication of how we have kind of overlooked uh, the importance of African-American giving over the history of our country, which has been substantial.
0: One last one, Amir, and we'll turn our attention to endowments. And at a time when we face so many urgent issues, many people believe that these endowments could be far better used if they were working to address these critical needs instead of being all tied up sitting there. Um, What would your take be on that?
1: Well, certainly in some situations that might be the case, but it used to be a time when, and many organizations still believe, that endowments are critical to be able to uh, them to... um, sustain their work over long periods of time, and they, endowments can cover things like uh, information technology, human resources, and marketing that are not necessarily seen as particularly uh, urgent to current donors, but for the health of an organization, they allow them to do their important work over long, longer periods of time and sustain their impact in a way that kind of simply project-based or program-based funding uh, does not allow them to do.
0: Let's move on. Um, under the auspices of the Women's Philanthropy Institute, which is at the Lilly School, you recently quantified the number of charities in the U.S. dedicated to women and girls and the amount of charitable giving that they receive. What were those findings?
1: Well, this was a very important study because we have we cre- increasingly see the importance of investing in women and girls, and yet we didn't really have a baseline to understand how many organizations there were and how much money they were giving. So... Uh, this was the beginning of a, a new index that will establish a baseline so that we can see how giving to women's and girls issues um, increases over time. And what we found was that the uh, the, the the amount was relatively modest, uh, less than two percent of giving uh, goes to women's and girls issues the Goodness. way that we've, we, we, we we measured it. But now at least we have a a baseline so that that we can uh, uh, we, we can um, um, uh, measure it going forward.
0: Yeah, that makes a big difference when you're tracking something like that, and uh, it gives people an incentive to to give more and move that number up. Another index you have is the Global Philanthropy Environment Index, and you look across the world and you take into account the factors in different countries, I think 79 all told, which uh, foster philanthropic uh, uh, contributions and also which ones inhibit them. Tell us about that.
1: Well, this is a, a, an effort to measure the ease of doing philanthropy in all these con- in, in eighty countries around the world, and we look at things like um, the the tax situation, uh, the um, the government's policies toward philanthropy. We look at the cultural situation. We look at the ease of making gifts inside the country and making gifts across borders, and what we do find is kind of a little bit what you would expect that North America and Northwest Europe. Uh, lead lead the world in terms of the uh, ease of doing philanthropy in those countries but the purpose of the index is not simply to create a popularity list mm-hmm. or kind of a list of who's who's the uh, the top and who's at the bottom it's really to start a deeper dialogue about what What does philanthropy and caring for each other mean in different countries? So we're using, really, the index as a way to begin a conversation with uh, people who are interested in philanthropy in different countries to better understand, well, what does philanthropy mean in your country? How do you care for each other? What is the role of the government? Also, with the purpose of informing policymakers so that they can make more informed decisions about philanthropy as it increases in interest in many countries policymakers are not ready to understand what it means for them often they feel that philanthropy supports civil society that may potentially threaten the government uh-huh. others are trying to figure out how do we collaborate with this sector to help improve our impact in society and and then there's other people who have made some wealth are trying to understand you know what it means for them to have Kind of these unprecedented levels of wealth and how that can have a social impact that is beneficial for their country.
0: What did you find out about philanthropy in China?
1: Well, I think China. We we we've, we've we've found you know important restrictions uh, on on the freedom of people to be able to uh, give money freely, and there was some recent. Um, uh, policy decisions that have made uh, the activities of outside international entities more difficult in China. But at the same time, we see a enthusiasm for the potential for philanthropy to um, engage in social services in China. Mm -hmm.
0: Earlier this year, Amir, you announced a new program to help Muslim American nonprofits expand their fundraising and other capabilities and also help other nonprofits better understand the practice and tradition of philanthropy and Islam. Tell us more about that initiative and what are some of the charitable motivations of Muslims?
1: Well, as uh, Islam is one of the fastest growing um, religions in the United States and it's often misunderstood and uh, one of the hopes of our effort is to support the um, kind of Muslim philanthropic sector in the United States mm-hmm. to become more professionalized, to have a better talent, uh, and we hope to contribute to their um, understanding of how to run organizations better and how to understand the, the whole sector more thoroughly, but also hopefully to help uh, uh, Americans who haven't had much engagement with the with Islam or, or, or Muslims to understand that there are social service organizations uh, inspired by the uh, Islamic faith who are doing things that are very similar to what other social service organizations do and so hopefully build some understanding across faiths as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Amir, do you believe that the field is generating the level, the volume, the quality of research that is needed to better inform philanthropists and nonprofits about best practices and models?
1: Well, we certainly uh, at the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy um, have put a lot of emphasis on research and the importance of understanding this important sector of our lives, and um, so we're trying our best to generate research and with colleagues in other universities and other research institutions collaborate quite intensively to create more knowledge about you know how Americans volunteer, how they give money, how they engage in uh, voluntary activities of all kinds, ranging from helping others to expressing. Um, their their beliefs. Um, but we do think that there's not enough research. When mm-hmm. you think about how much research there is on a daily basis coming out of uh, the business sector or how much information there is about the government, the third sector is, is kind of still way behind in terms of generating data and information about what's happening.
0: Yeah, yeah. Here's a hot issue in philanthropy, and that is many institutions, especially cultural institutions, They've received significant grants from individuals uh, whose source of wealth is now being questioned, and there's a lot of pressure on them to uh, refuse those gifts or, in some cases, even return them. And this is just not a case of the Sackler family and the opioid crisis. I mean, this is extending to things such as uh, individuals who have made their fortune in oil or coal or munitions. What is your opinion of how these organizations need to go about finding the correct course of action?
1: Well, it's a fascinating issue, and we live in a fascinating time where there is an intensive scrutiny uh, of of the origins of wealth and wealth in general because of our growing consciousness of inequality. But in some ways, it's not new. When Andrew Carnegie was building his libraries all across the United States, there were some municipalities that rejected his funding because they felt that his business practices did not reflect the values that they held at the same time. So in some ways, it's not new. And it is a it is a important challenge for the leaders uh, and the community of these organizations, uh, and I think what leaders are noticing is that they have to engage their broader community more intensively. So the people who work for them, their boards, their broader um, community that is interested in what they do. Let's say that if they're a museum, and they have to show some moral vision and help interpret. You know, is is money that comes from coal or uh, carbon-based industries n- no longer palatable, and is the community willing to make the sacrifice of uh, funds in order to eliminate that kind of funding for what they're doing? And so, it, it really, it's 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 a fundamental and profound leadership challenge and and and, a, and, a, and an ethical uh, conundrum for for leaders who. I think have to reach out to their broader community more intensively and help interpret what this means for their particular organization. It is not an enviable pursuit situation to be in, but you know this is this is also a, a moment to step up to the challenge.
0: Yeah, it really is, and uh, I've had a number of uh, of those leaders on the show who said they have their gift acceptance policy under review right now. Yes, yes. But uh, it's one thing to have it under review, and another thing to decide what you're going to do because it's it's a it's a tough situation, and sometimes it's a fluid situation. It is because. It is things change, societies change, environment changes, and things which were acceptable three years ago may not be acceptable three years from now.
1: Indeed, I think, and this is what was seen, that is seen in the UK, for example, because after the big scandal at the London School of Economics, Mm -hmm. there was a royal chartered review of uh, gift acceptance policy across universities, and at Oxford University, most recently, that has a very systematic Uh, review policy, the faculty were up in arms about a a donation from a relatively mainstream donor, Um, Stephen Schwartzman because they felt that the whole private equity model was somehow inimical to their values, which is a quite quite remarkable statement if you think about how mainstream private equity has become to our business life.
0: Yeah, yeah. Let me close with this, Amir. If we were to have this conversation again, let's say in 10 years' time, what do you believe would be one or two things that would be at the very top of our agenda relating to philanthropy and the nonprofit sector?
1: You know that's a wonderful story, uh, a wonderful question. So let 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 me um, let me be Pollyannish in some way e- or extremely optimistic. So I think in ten years, uh, a lot more of our economy will be automated. Mm-hmm. Al- algorithms will solve a lot of everyday problems for us. So that the things that we're going to focus on are really those things where uh, we can c- care for each other and and express our generosity. Uh, and express who we are in terms of what we want to give to each other and to the world. So my sense is, my hope is really, that there will be a, a profoundly deeper appreciation for philanthropy as something that is uh, valuable and something that we need to nurture and, and think about more systematically as increasing parts of you know, all the serious things we do today are taken over by um, machines and, and robots for us.
0: Maybe a notch or two up on the Maslow hierarchy of it needs, as you're saying. <laughs> exactly. So
1: that's that's you know that's that's another way to interpret that as well. So we will be fo- focusing, hopefully, on our higher faculties, and those are all about generosity and caring for each other.
0: Well, I certainly do like ending on an optimistic note. Well, Amir Pasik the dean of the Lilly School of Philanthropy, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. Share with us some of the information that visitors can find on your website and also maybe how they can sign up for one of these courses that you offer in those 18 cities you spoke about.
1: Well, absolutely. It's very easy to find us. If you just Google Lilly Family School of Philanthropy or go to our website, which is www.iupui.com, .edu, um, which is the, our home institution, uh, you can find all the information there as well. Um, we are in 18 cities around the country in terms of our fundraising training, uh, which uh, is, is quite accessible as well and also available online. But uh, we're not hard to find if you just uh, Google Lilly Family School of Philanthropy.
0: And you got some great information on that website, I will add.
3: Great. Well, thank you so much.
0: Thanks, Amir. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show.
3: My
1: pleasure.
0: I'll be back with more of The Business of Giving right after this.
3: Through Grameen America's groundbreaking microfinance model, tens of thousands of low-income women in New York are getting the financial capital they need to build small businesses and climb out of poverty. Join the movement. Visit GrameenAmerica.org to learn more. If you're interested in reading transcripts of guests' interviews from the Business of Giving, you can find them at denverfrederick.wordpress.com. And now back to the show on AM 970, The Answer. When a child falls behind in school, it can be
0: very difficult for him or her to ever catch up. It's made that much harder if they fall a couple of years behind and it is next to impossible if that child happens to be from the developing world. But there is a remarkable innovation in education that is allowing children to close a three-year gap in just a single year. And here to tell us about it, it's a pleasure to have with us Caitlin Barron, the CEO of the Luminos Fund. Good evening, Caitlin, and welcome to the Business of Giving.
2: Good evening, and thank you for having me.
0: Tell us the mission of the Luminos Fund and the founding story of the organization.
2: Fantastic, well, Even today, there are still 250 million children around the world who never learn to read and write. 60 million of those kids don't even get the chance to try because they're denied the chance to go to school. And Luminos was created to give those children a second chance. We were founded as a standalone organization in 2016 after six long years of experimentation and program development in the far reaches of rural Ethiopia. We found we had a truly unique model of working in some of the poorest communities to deliver rich quality education to children who hadn't had the chance to study up until then. What is the
0: reason that many of these children have not had the chance to study up until then and what changes where they're able to go to one of your schools?
2: The two biggest reasons uh, children are kept out of school in the developing world are poverty and conflict. Mm -hmm. So in many of the communities we operate, even free education is too expensive when children are needed at home to work on a farm or to care for their siblings. And what happens is that families put off schooling a year, another year, another year. I can't tell you how many mothers I've met who've told me, I promised my son, next year you can study. And what happens is too much time goes on Mm -hmm. and ultimately the child has really missed the window to begin their schooling. And they live in an environment where there's simply no second on-ramp or second opportunity to catch up when you've lost out. Do
0: you think, Caitlin, that in the international community that we in by and large have set the bar too low that Mm -hmm. these kids have not had a chance for any kind of schooling and whatever we give them, no matter how minimal, is better than nothing.
2: You know I think that uh, that is such an important point Denver and and one of the aspects of our work that I find the most uh, ultimately exciting and rewarding which is that that you know we work with children who have literally never been to school and in 10 months they become functionally literate and numerate. Uh, they're able to read uh, um, they're essentially covering three years of school in one year and This is incredibly important because, first and foremost, we don't have a lot of time Mm -hmm. to get these kids back on track. Um, But even beyond that, I think one of the things that excites me the most about the work is that we're proving what's possible. We're proving that children, even from some of the poorest families in the world, can learn an extraordinary amount in a really short period of time. We're proving that teachers – who are essentially young people with minimal qualifications, who are drawn from these same poor communities, can actually be empowered to deliver rich five senses education. You know, even in a classroom lacking in electricity, lacking in an in internet signal. Uh, you know, I think that the thing we take away from the work um, that I think is a lesson for education globally is that we've all thought too small about mm-hmm. what's possible. Right.
0: Yeah okay, I'm 10 years old, I'm three years behind in school, and I'm going to go to one of your second chance programs. How in the world in 10 months are you going to have me catch up to my peers and be able to enter into a government school?
2: So there are a number of things we do differently. Some are – some are fairly tactical, mm-hmm. and some are a little bit magical. So for starters, we work with a much smaller classroom than you would typically find in these types of environments. So we never have more than 25 children in oh, the class. Okay. That's about
0: um, half the size, isn't that's it? That's
2: about half the size or even less yeah. of a typical classroom. And then, you know... The children and teachers in our program work incredibly hard, so we have them for a full day Monday through Friday. Mm -hmm. In some places, we actually do a half day on Saturday as well. Um, Is that
0: longer than the normal school day?
2: We calculate that children in our program spend four times as many hours on reading as children would in a normal school. Mm -hmm. And so some of it is, quite frankly, more one-on-one attention and a longer day. Um, But then there's the magical element. And what we've found, I mean, look, think about how your own children learned to read, right? They, they learned not just through sitting in front of a text, not just through sitting at a desk and engaging in choral recitation, right? They, you know, they engaged with an alphabet all around them. They had the luxury of growing up in a text-rich environment. Um, the children we work with don't have those luxuries, so we have to bring that tactile learning environment into the classroom. Mm-hmm. We, you know, when we first introduce the alphabet to children, we actually we have them make an enormous bowl of mud and roll out long tubes of sort of clay-like earth that that one finds in the in the places we work. We have them form those tubes into each letter in the alphabet and mm-hmm. have that dry in the sun. So their first introduction to the alphabet is very much, you know, fingers in mud forming these letters themselves. We, you know, we work exclusively with texts that have stories set in their context with characters who have names like the names of the children in their village. We, you know, on the numeracy side, we have the children set up small shops in the classroom and engage in the kind of easy sort of back and forth mental math that actually they themselves are, are already doing in the marketplace every day. And so a lot of you know, if I, I I think if I can identify two things that I think we do really differently. One is that we look and listen really closely for what does the child already know? Mm-hmm. And how can I build from there? And the second is we look and listen really closely to the surrounding environment. And rather than focusing on what our classes don't have, we focus on what they do have, which is a richness of experience, uh, natural resources around them. And, you know, if you have a chance to visit one of our classrooms – Uh, You'll find a fairly simple structure. Usually the walls are mud. There'll be a tin roof. Mm -hmm. There'll be a single window that lets in light, no electricity. Uh, But you'll find every single surface in the classroom is covered with the children's artwork and handmade learning materials and elements that use the natural resources around the environment to learn.
0: And listening carefully to you, Caitlin, it sounds like you try to make it
2: fun. So... Children everywhere learn best when they're happy. Uh, that's just the bottom line. And that is no less true in the poorest corners of the world than it is in the classrooms that your kids and mine attend. And so we place an enormous premium on what we call joyful learning, mm-hmm. recognizing that this classroom needs to be a celebration of the learning process. Um, and that that is really really different from the environment that most of these kids would have otherwise been learning in. You know, if you think about the typical school in the developing world, you have a teacher who's minimally qualified, who has almost no materials, books, et cetera, Mm -hmm. that she can use with her students. Um, She's under enormous pressure to deliver results, and she's standing in front of a class of 80 or more children trying to teach kids who are, in essence, what we think of as first-generation readers. These are not kids who are learning to read at home, right? right? So, you know, under, in the context of all that pressure, um, the, the net result for good or for ill is that it's often school is not a very happy place. Mm-hmm. And so we try to just fundamentally rethink what that learning environment is because quite frankly we believe that children can't learn we know they can't learn quickly unless they're having fun
0: let's talk a little bit more about those teachers because as you said they are minimally trained Mm. i would presume you have some kind of a training program for them but i mean they're really a key element to all this how are you able to get them from zero to 60 in such a fashion that they can be as effective as they have been
2: Uh, It's a great question. So um, we are blessed in the communities we work uh, with a large number of of reasonably capable, high potential young people who, quite frankly, have a limited range of of opportunities before them. And so the profile we target for teachers are young people who have at least a 10th grade education Um, that's not the level you'd need to be at in order to be a teacher in a public school in these countries. But it's far enough along that you definitely know the first three years Mm -hmm. of the curriculum. And so what we can focus on in our program is actually rather than teaching the what of what we'll be teaching children and teaching our our teachers the how. Um, So we do an intensive three-week training program at the beginning of the year we do two other trainings during the year but the real magic is that we actually have a coach in each classroom every single week coach coaching makes all the difference and you know uh Teaching is not a theoretical endeavor. There's actually only so much of it you can teach in a classroom. You know, uh, and and it's really in the act of the doing and doing alongside the teachers that, that we really transfer that skill. And obviously in the years... Uh, as the years go on, and the program's been in place for a number of mm-hmm. years, those coaches, coaches uh, are drawn from the very best of the teaching talent from the previous year. Right.
0: And we've talked about the communities you're in, so we should probably discuss what countries do you operate?
2: So our first program uh, was founded and created in rural Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's still one of our largest programs. We have also launched programs in Liberia and West Africa. Liberia has one of the highest rates of -of out-of-school children in the world. Literally 60% Mm -hmm. of primary school age kids are kept out of school. And then most recently, we've launched a program in Lebanon where we support Syrian refugees who've been out of school sometimes for many years simply because they've been displaced from their homes.
0: I know a key element to the success of this program is to get a buy-in from the local communities, and that can be very difficult for a nonprofit or any organization. What are some of the keys that you found in getting that kind of a buy-in?
2: That's a great question. I mean, First and foremost, we believe really strongly in working through local organizations. And so our team designs the curriculum, the pedagogy, what is taught and the way it's taught. We train teachers, then we monitor in the classroom, and we evaluate. But we actually fund local nonprofits to deliver the classes and the work. And there's at least two important reasons why. One, first and foremost, for that buy-in you're talking Mm -hmm. about. Um, We, you know, in Ethiopia, we run the program in four different languages, right? If we were trying to do that centrally, that just wouldn't make sense. We have to work through local organizations. But the other reason is that we want to be building capacity in the countries we work for the long term. And so building up a huge team of our own really doesn't make sense. We're really focused on building the capacity of organizations there. Mm
0: -hmm. And I know you can't just replicate something that works in one place and then paste it onto another and think it's going to work. So let's take two of the countries where you've been in the longest, those would be in Ethiopia and Liberia. What would be the difference in those two programs?
2: It's a great question. Um, and we like to say that replication is about sort of 70% duplication and 30% mission-critical customization. Yep, yep. <laughs> So there's a core it's element a ratio. that is very much the same, but there are some critical things we had to change when we moved to Liberia. Um, one is first and foremost uh, the it, you know it's interesting for those of us in the U.S. when we think about Ethiopia you know, prior to last week's wonderful news <laughs> yes. of the Nobel Prize. You know the most the most ready image in folks' heads might still be the famine of the 1980s. Yep. and as horrible as that time was. Actually, it's been a really fantastic set of decades since then for Mm -hmm. Ethiopia. Ethiopia has come a long way. And so what we find with our students there is that most of them have started school, learned something, and been pulled out. So what that means for us is that our task is to figure out what those kids know and build forward from there. In Liberia, a country that survived a 20-year civil war, where the school system was literally entirely shut down, where it was most recently shut down for an entire year once again during the Ebola, Ebola crisis, crisis right. um, we're just dealing with a different entry point. You know, so we found that the kids coming into our program had, you know, literally not been acquainted with the alphabet, um, and so we needed our entry point just needed to be quite different. And we've taken a much more kind of step-by-step phonics-based approach to to learning in Liberia, which is just, it's really the, I mean, it's just an example of the kind of thing one has to do all the time, right? Good teaching is uh, is not a lecture, it's a relationship. Mm-hmm. It's listening for what the child knows and doesn't know, calibrating Meeting them where they are. Meeting them where they are. Mm-hmm. And so that's really core to our philosophy. And so inevitably there's a fair amount of, of customization as we move from place to place.
0: As someone who has a uh, cram for a test or two in my time, uh, I know firsthand that um, a lot of information that is quickly inputted, is not always retained. Now, I know you've done some longitudinal studies in concert with the uh, Center for International Education at the University of Sussex. What has been the impact of this program, and especially a number of years later?
2: And, you know, it's a great question, Denver. And one of the, you know, a wonderful thing that we know year in and year out with our program, because we test kids on their way in and we test them on their Mm -hmm. way out, is we know at the end of their 10 months with us, they know an enormous amount. We know that they know more than other children who've been in school continuously since then. And that's a relatively easy thing for us to test year in and year out what's hard as a delivery organization is to ever really know what happens in the long term. And so we were gifted uh, with an enormous investment from our board a few years back with this amazing evaluation partnership with University of Sussex, where they were able to take a long-term look at what happens for our kids. They followed graduates of our program six years now. Okay,
0: that's a long time.
2: And, And what they found really blew us away. Uh, we found that even six years later, children were still had a sustained academic improvement relative to their peers in government school. We found that that students were quite frankly happier and had higher ambitions for what they wanted to do with their lives. Most importantly, we found that graduates of our program were completing primary school at twice the rate of other children. Fantastic. And I, you know, I think we've tried to stop and think about. Because you know, it just makes common sense. Like a one-year program, how long can the effect of that last, right? And you know, we really put it to our evaluators of what do you think is the what do you think is the essence of the success here? And one of the things they've really emphasized to us is the importance of the way in which we work on teaching children to learn how to learn. We teach them to lead their own learning process, um, and so what that means is that even when they transition back into really cash-strapped local public schools where, quite frankly, the learning environment is less than ideal, that they have that that intrinsic wherewithal mm-hmm. to drive forward their own learning. I mean, the other thing I'd say on that is that um, we know that learning to read is a gatekeeping event yeah. in the education process, mm-hmm. right? Really... The child can't actually direct their own learning until they themselves can read, and so that that is a critical game-changing first benchmark. Um, and I think the fact that we can get children there before they head off into the school system is is one of the key reasons why we've seen the long-term. Success. Yeah, you teach them
0: how, how to learn. Yeah, You're, they learn how to learn, and that that is that is so valuable. Um, I've had the pleasure to meet. A couple of your key partners, corporate partners, tell our listeners about them.
2: So, Luminos is funded by um, a really wonderful group of um, corporate and private philanthropists who, you know, I think have come together around our cause quite simply because I think, you know, I think if you ask any successful person in the world what made them who they are. Mm -hmm. Nobody's going to get through their their top three without talking about their education and how much that meant to them. And so I, I think one of the real points of resonance that we found between our mission and our supporters um, has been just that that appreciation of of none of us got where we are without education. So why not make that possible for others? Um, our our first major supporter is a, a New Zealand entrepreneur uh, called Christopher Chandler. Mm-hmm. Uh, founder of the Legatum Foundation. And he's really the... Great foundation. His team are the ones who really got this work started. And since that time, and we've been blessed to see a number of other supporters come on board, uh, the UBS... Bank uh, and their clients are major supporters, Cartier Philanthropies, a major supporter, and a number of of high-net-worth individuals who have contributed to us very generously.
0: You run a very lean organization. As you say, you work a lot with local partners. But what are some of the outstanding characteristics of your workplace culture that you think sets it apart from other similar organizations?
2: When I uh, when I founded Luminos four years ago, I, I'd already been doing this kind of work for a n- number of years. And one of the things I have just come to believe very strongly is that you can't do international work well without an international team. Mm-hmm. And so one of my priorities in building the organization was to make sure from day one we had um, global folks in the senior leadership of the headquarters office. Um, of course, all of our teams in country are drawn from those countries, but that that it be essential that up and down the chain, um, our organization was led by a global team, and I, I've just been so grateful to the degree to which we've uh, we've really been able to live that and honor that, and I think that it it means that we have an organization that has a different level of wisdom about the work it does. It means that uh, our team is seen as partners mm-hmm. to everyone we work with um and it and it means that um it means that our work is as much about celebrating the extraordinary aspects of, of the globe as it is remedying the shortcomings um so that's been a key piece of the puzzle i the other the other interesting element is uh whether we intended to or not, I think pretty much all of us in the senior leadership team spent an, at least a number of years in the private sector mm-hmm. before jumping into the social sector. And and I, I think you absolutely need depth on both sides. But, um, you know, I think we continue to leverage our sort of private sector background in how we think about measuring performance and impact. And when we're able to bring that together with our understanding of what it really means to mobilize a community to change, I think – It's a really powerful opportunity to bring those two sides together.
0: Yeah, those are some interesting observations. Uh, I don't think people fully appreciate the way you start an organization. So often Mm -hmm. is the culture of that organization, that founding story. People think they can do it later on. Get the founding right. (laughs) And if you do that, you'll save yourself uh, a lot of heartache. Boy, I'm curious about this. Do you think the Second Chance program could work here in the United States for kids who are several years behind?
2: So... It's a great question. I mean, I, one of the things I would say first and foremost is that um, part of what motivates us to deliver a second chance is actually recognizing the degree to which, for all the shortcomings in the U.S. system, one of the things our system does really well is actually provide kids with second chances. Mm-hmm. So whether you've failed out of high school and are now getting a GED or you're not able to get into a four-year college, but you can get into a two-year college. I mean, actually relative to, for example, Europe and other places, um, I think in the U.S. context, we actually do a much better job than uh, than many other countries in providing children with second chances. And quite honestly, that's a real Point of inspiration for, yeah. for us and our work, and in the communities that we work in overseas, um, there is no do-over once you <laughs> you have but one shot. Yeah. Um, and I, I, you know, I think as as Americans we know how how wasteful that is not to give young people the chance to try again. And so I, I think that's a big part of what inspires inspires us to do this work.
0: Mm-hmm. Let me close with this, Caitlin. Um, have there been given any thought about continuing the Second Chance program for kids who've been through it? I Mm -hmm. mean, here you have, you've done three years in one, you've gotten in there with your peers. I mean, that program seems like it it would have really, it would serve us well if we were to continue that program. And I also wonder how the kids feel Mm -hmm. who've been to this intensive school day, have learned so quickly, and then go back to the old traditional way of going to school.
2: So, you know, what's amazing about our graduates is how incredibly resilient they are Mm -hmm. and the degree to which they push through in an admittedly imperfect learning environment. Um, But that being said, uh, the lasting solution would be to empower teachers in public schools in all the countries we work in, to teach with the same joyful learning approach that we employ. And so we have been thrilled in the last two years to actually take the first steps on that journey. So in Ethiopia, where we've worked the longest, we're now partnering with government to train their teachers to not exactly duplicate our classroom, but pull through those same creative five senses learning techniques Um, in their own setting and and in their own way. And I think that um, when we look ahead to the future, Mm -hmm. uh, the opportunities we're most excited about, I think we we couldn't be more thrilled to really lean into that opportunity to use our teachers as uh, essentially the coaches for the system as a whole.
0: Yeah, the ambassadors. Absolutely. Well, Caitlin Barron, the CEO of the Luminous Fund, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. Where can listeners learn more about this work or help financially support it if they should be so inclined?
2: We really uh, encourage everyone listening. um, Please follow us online at uh, luminosfund.org and uh, get to know us through social media, and we would welcome any further support.
0: (laughs) I'm sure you have a donate button there. Well, thanks, Caitlin. It was a real pleasure to have you on the program.
2: Thank you so much.
3: It's time for Take 5, a recurring feature of the business of giving with five or so quick questions posed to the leaders of the world of philanthropy, business, and social enterprise.
0: We are going to play Take 5 with Peter Singer, professor of bioethics at Princeton University and the author of The Life You Can Save. Are you ready, Peter? I'm ready. What is today's most underreported story?
4: The fact that we are reducing global poverty. uh, It's a huge difference that we're making. That uh, when I first wrote the first edition of this book, there were 9.7 million children under five dying every year from poverty-related causes. Now it's down to 5.3 million. So in 10 years, we've almost halved this. Um, And yet that story hardly ever gets reported.
0: What should we, as a society, be worried about?
4: I think we should be worried about climate change. I think climate change is a huge problem that is affecting the whole world. And all of the good progress we've been making in reducing poverty could be undone by changes in climate, the fact that Rain stops falling in places where people need it to grow their food, uh, more floods, more droughts. Uh, I think that we need to be more worried about this.
0: What is something you believe that other people think is insane?
4: <laughs> I hope that there's nothing that I believe that people think <laughs> is uh, is really completely insane, but I, I do think that We ought to be giving a substantial amount of our earnings to help other people. And uh, a lot of people, I guess, particularly in the United States, um, where there's a kind of ethic of wealth uh, being fine and good, um, think that it's insane to believe that we should be giving money away.
0: Not to put you on the spot, but name some organization or person that you have a tremendous amount of respect and admiration for.
4: Well, I'm going to name Charlie Bressler, who is the person who has really built the life you can save into an organization. Uh, I wrote a book with that title. Uh, a couple of students helped me put up a website and uh, you know create some presence online for people to get information. But Charlie then called me and said he wanted to do something more worthwhile with his life than he'd been doing. He'd had a successful career in the retail industry, he'd made enough money, um, but that wasn't in accord with his values. So he volunteered to retire from his work and go full-time building up this organization for no pay whatsoever. In fact, I tell him he's on negative salary because he donates to the organization. Um, So I really admire uh, that commitment and I greatly admire what he's done to build up the organization.
0: What idea in philanthropy is ready for retirement?
4: I think what's ready for retirement is the idea that you can tell how good an organization is by looking at the ratio of administrative expenses to funds received. That's what a lot of people do, but it's really misleading. It's really a myth because it encourages organizations to cut back on their administration. And sometimes that means that they can no longer really check that the money that they're handing out is doing what it's supposed to do. And it can be much better to spend more on administration and really have your money do what you want it to do, really have only effective programs and cut out the others. But that takes staff and that takes cost. and. Uh some organizations are reluctant to do that because so many people are choosing to give to the ones that can say, we only give 10% or even less to administration.
0: What have you changed your mind about in the last 10 years and why?
4: Uh, okay, so that's a bit more of a philosophical question, I guess. Um, I've changed my mind about the objectivity of ethical judgments. Uh, I... Studied in an era when a lot of people thought that, yes, there's some role for reason in ethics, but it's limited. And underlying it all is really emotional judgments that we can't say are right or wrong. Um, over the years, I've become dissatisfied with that. And within the last 10 years, I've become more clear that I do think there is objective truth in ethics.
0: If you were a kitchen utensil, what would you be?
4: Uh I hope that I would be a fork. It's it's less destructive than a knife, and it's very useful for picking up the things that you really need to have and uh, putting them where you want them to go.
0: What do you wish people were more open and honest about?
4: Oh, I'd like people to be open and honest about their giving. Uh, one of the funny things about, about uh, giving is that people are actually a bit shy, a bit reluctant to say, Oh, yes, I give. I think it's important to give you know, some percentage of your income to effective charities. Um, People feel that that's somehow going to be boasting or self-righteous. But all the psychological research shows that people are more likely to give when they know that others are giving. And if they think, oh, you know, no one else is giving, then why would I give? So we need to have people talking about their giving in order to spread the idea that that's a normal part of life and that that's a thing that decent ethical people do.
0: What's your superpower?
4: (laughs) Uh, I suppose, you know, I'm a philosopher. Um, My superpower ought to be reasoning at a high level and working things out. So uh, I hope that that's what I approximate. And if I really had superpowers, I hope that's what it would be.
0: If you were to start your career all over again and do something completely different and away from this field, what would that be?
4: Oh, um, I really love being out in nature and out in the open, so if I really had to do something completely different, um, maybe I'd go and be a ranger in a national park.
0: Give us the name of one of your favorite restaurants
4: uh, Blossom, a vegan restaurant in New York, uh, New York City on Ninth on Avenue. Uh, it's a great place to go.
0: What is something, whether this is related to your work or not, that you're exceptionally excited about right now?
4: Uh, I, well, really, it is related to my work. I'm exceptionally excited about the release of the new edition of The Life You Can Save and the fact that people can download it for free, uh, I really want to see how that goes. And uh, I just hope that we get a huge number of people reading and talking about it.
0: What is one thing you wish you really more fully understood?
4: There are are many philosophy problems that I'd like to understand more fully. One of the deep ones is the question of consciousness. Um, How do we know whether another being is consciousness uh, is conscious, uh, and this you know in, relates to my work about animals. How do we know which animals are conscious? Do we know? You know, can we tell our insects conscious? Uh, uh, what a fish experience? Um, you know, we can have some insights into these different things, but uh, it's still something of a mystery as to what the sort of physical basis for consciousness is and how we can really assess. The consciousness of different beings.
0: What advice would you give to your twenty-year-old self?
4: Uh, I would say um, be yourself. I think at twenty, I was still a little, you know, nervous about the way I was appearing to others and the way I would come across. And uh, I think I learned later on to relax and just be myself and let people. Take me as I am, and if they didn't like that, well, okay, then I can move on and uh, do something else.
0: And finally, do you have a quote you live your life by or think of often?
4: So a quote that I think of often uh, comes from uh, a 19th century British philosopher called Henry Sidgwick who said, from the point of view of the universe, everybody's well-being counts just as much as everybody else's. and, you know, there's other people have said that too. You know, all lives are of equal value. It's on Bill and Melinda Gates' website. Um, but this idea of looking at things from the point of view of the universe, you know, not that I think the universe itself actually has a point of view, um, but uh, we can take that perspective. We can elevate ourselves to getting away from our own situation, and we can say, what really would do the most good from that perspective? And I think it's important that every now and again, we do that.
0: Thank you very much, Peter.
4: Thank you, Denver.
0: And that is this week's show. Thanks for listening. Have a great week and do return next Sunday evening for The Business of Giving.
3: The preceding program is paid for by the friends and partners of The Business of Giving.